You're listening to audio from Christ Covenant Buckhead. If you're interested in learning more, visit ChristCovenantBuckhead.org. You can be seated. Uh, Thank you, Tara, Matt, Amber, and Frankie for leading us in worship so well uh, this morning. I think having a violin just makes life better, and so thank you for doing that. I might request, depending on how the sermon goes, I might request you to come up midway through and just start playing, and then it'll sound amazing. So thank you, guys. Also, just a couple of other notes, um, um, particular to this morning. Like Tara mentioned in her prayer, uh, we did um, walk into kind of a crazy uh, nest um, going on here at Sutton Middle School. They're filming a movie um, called Little, and so uh, they've been using this stage and this whole area uh, for uh, for that. And so there's popcorn and everything all on the floor when we came in this morning. They're not watching movies in here. They're filming movies in here, but there's still popcorn. So I don't know what that is, but... Um, at any rate, thank you so much to the volunteers who have been working so hard since like 8 a.m. this morning to make this happen. And so if you're just showing up for service, um, welcome. Thank you for being here. But know that many people have gone before you this morning to really clean up and work their tails off to, to get us to a position to where we, like we are now. Also, another note uh, about this morning, I, I feel like the last uh, several times we've mentioned uh, people who are doing missions, it's been us sending them out. But today we're happy to receive back a couple, uh, Jeremy and Lizzie Brooks, who have been spending about six or so weeks extended for the you know flight back and everything. But uh, we're, we'd like to welcome them back. Uh, we sent them out, and now they're back with us today. And then I, I think I have this right, and I could, this could just fall on its face, but I think I have this right. I think we've got a, a group of eight people here who are with Jensend, did I get that right, all right, and, and these people have dedicated their whole summer, they're right here, just wave so that everybody can get, yeah, there you go, um, they dedicate their whole summer to doing mission and, and serving churches um, through the Southern Baptist Convention, and so we're grateful to have them with us today, they're here today because they're going to be spending vacation Bible school with us, and so, uh, you know, we're doing vacation Bible school for the first time, by the way, if you didn't know that, um, and it, it's a lot of logistics and needs, it requires a lot of people. And so uh, we're just grateful that the Lord has sent them our way as well. Uh, my name is Blake Rogers. I'm the associate pastor here uh, at Christ Covenant. Uh, pastor Jason is away preaching at a revival of sorts. And so I'm glad to uh, be able to stand before you today as we launch this new series on family worship. If you're with us over the last several weeks, we have been studying Philippians. And so we walked through uh, four sermons in Philippians. And today we're, we're launching the first of three sermons on family worship. Family worship. And uh, today, in particular, we're talking about the why behind family worship. Next week, we're talking about how to do that. And then, really, the third week is going to be more practical, I believe, and it's what this looks like. And so, I'm excited to launch into why we do family worship. Why do we believe in family worship as a church family um, at Christ Covenant? And so, uh, as we uh, kind of jump into this thing, I want to lay some groundwork for us. You know, there is a family crisis, really, going on in our culture. There's a family crisis going on in our churches. I've got three data points that I think we have uh, up here on the TV uh, to, to share with you. Yes, that's our text for today, and so that's one data point. And so the, the, the first data point is that this, is this, quality time between parents and children is plummeting, especially with the influence of technology and that constantly uh, bombards our lives and lives in our pockets or in our hands. Quality time together is plummeting. And um, the New York 
Post produced an article back in March of this year that stated this. American families just get 37 minutes of quality time together daily on average. A study of 2,000 parents with school-aged children across the country found the extent to which hectic routines take a toll during the work week with families polled managing less than 45 minutes altogether in a typical work weekday. That's 37 minutes. So the people that God values, as mo- that we should value as most important to us, we're getting 37 minutes on average of quality time. It's a cultural issue. But we also have an issue within the church as well. Lifeway produced a study several years ago um, that found this, that, that the, the percentage of kids who end up leaving the church when they graduate high school and move out from under their parents' roof is nearly 70%. 70% of children, of kids, of youth who are raised up in the church leave as soon as they get outside of the roof authority of their parents. That's a crisis, y'all. Okay? I've been a youth pastor for seven years, and this is one of the statistic, statistics that really weighs heavily on me. And it is kind of heavy when you sit in front of a, a group of students and you say, hey guys, 70% of you? won't even care about church when you leave your parents' home. And to look them in the face and say that, statistically speaking, from a data point standpoint, from a data standpoint, that is real. That is true. That is a weighty thing, and that is a crisis that we currently see and are in our experiencing uh, within the church. That was produced by Lifeway, who also produces awesome infographic, uh, but then also Barna Group found similar results when they did the same research. The third data point, the percentage of, of children who are in Christian homes uh, or, or a higher percentage of par- children are in Christian homes where they're never, uh, where their parents hardly ever crack the Bible open, and so, um, and you know, all of these things are really symbiotic in terms of what causes what. Uh, but all of these things need to be addressed, and all of these things really go together. Charles Spurgeon, which was a quote that we uh, have up here on the screen, slide four and five, stated this, and this is in the 1800s in England. He said this, "Brethren, I wish it were more common." I wish it were universal that all Christians to have family prayer. We sometimes hear of children of Christian parents who do not grow up in the fear of God, and we are asked how it is that they turn out so badly. In man, very many cases, I fear that there is, I fear that there is such a neglect of family worship that it is not probable, this is the key, that children are at all impressed by the piety supposed to be possessed by their parents. We come to church on Sundays, and I'm speaking very broadly about um, American Christianity. We come to church on, on Sundays. If you have Wednesday night service, you may do that. You may do some group activity throughout the week. But there's hardly ever an emphasis, speaking across the board, on cracking the Bible with your children in the home. Charles Spurgeon saw this in the 1800s in England, and it is a problem that hasn't gone away today. The Barna Group, I know I'm throwing a lot of data points at you uh, today, but the Barna Group did a, did a study on family worship in 2003, and here's a conclusion. 85% of parents with children under the age of 13 believe that they have the primary responsibility for teaching children about religious beliefs and spiritual matters. This is, I think, on the next slide. However, a majority of parents don't spend any time during a typical week discussing religious matters or studying religious materials with their children. Parents generally rely upon the church to, all of, to do all of the religious training that their children 
will receive. This was produced in 2003, and I really don't think that it's gotten any better. Okay? And, and so we have a crisis. We've got a cultural crisis that's growing and getting more difficult. And we also have a crisis within the church. And we at Christ Covenant believe that a large part of the solution to this is that we just need to get better as parents, future parents, current parents, grandparents, at creating an emphasis of worshiping the one true and living God in the home. We think that it's theologically true, but we also think that it's true of what it means to be human. And so we'll talk more about that later. So our present text that you saw earlier is Joshua chapter 24, and we're going to be looking primarily at verses 14 through 28. So if you go ahead and flip there in your Bible, I'll give us a little bit of context as we run up to this passage. What we're looking at here in chapter 24 of Joshua is Joshua's last speech. Okay, it's his last recorded speech. Joshua is over 100 years old whenever he's giving this speech. These are, he, he knows, as well as the people know, that he is nearing the end of his life. It's going, it's coming to a close, it's coming to an end. And as is often true, what somebody thinks is most important in life is stated, is, is uh, spent, emphasized, whenever they know that their life is coming to an end. You don't, at the end of your life, consider frivolous things. You don't, at the end of your life, talk about and really emphasize and pay attention to that which doesn't last. And that's exactly what we see in Joshua here. He's giving his last recorded speech as an effort to really pound truth, to call out the nation of Israel to worship the one true and living God and to serve him. That's what we're going to be looking at uh, today. But another reason that I really love this passage and, and, and really the whole book of Joshua as I prepared for the sermon um, is his emphasis on teaching generationally. Okay, Joshua, think about this. Like, like, think about this. Joshua is chief of staff. I'm sorry, commander-in-chief, really, of this nation of Israel. Okay? He's responsible for leading them safely from the wilderness and into the promised land. And in order to do that, they're going to have to defeat enemy after enemy who is occupying this land. He has a massive task. Think about the communication challenges. Think about culture, okay? Many of you study work culture. Think about culture when it comes to communicating all of this and, and keeping everybody on the same page in this far back day. I mean, unbelievably difficult challenge, and he is the man that God has chosen to be responsible for this. He has a massive, massive task. He's a leader of leaders here. And yet, what is he thinking about? He's thinking about the generations. He's thinking about legacy, and I think we also, within the church, fall into the mindset, as John Piper, often, as John Piper has said it, as, as thinking fatalistically. We oftentimes live our lives and spend our time thinking about only things that matter until we die. Okay? We don't think 200 years out when we consider our family. We think about vacation. Vacation's awesome. We think about just getting through the day sometimes. Listen. I got a two-year-old, two-and-a-half-year-old. Many of you know him. If you worked in nursery, you definitely know him. All right. Um, he's got on an orange shirt today. If he's in the parking lot later, just bring him back. Like, don't let him get injured or anything like that, or at least try. But, like, I mean, this guy is, he's challenging, okay? And it is very difficult and hard sometimes to think 200 years out whenever you're just trying to get out the door to church, 
okay? It, it is very, very difficult sometimes in, in the craziness of what it means to be raising children to be thinking legacy, to be thinking 200 years out. Now, we've got a daughter as well. She's just turned eight months old. Go on Instagram. You can see a picture of her. We posted yesterday. It's awesome. So, um, and she's an angel. I mean, she's just unbelievably awesome. So, at any rate, that's our, that's our story. But, but we're just trying to wrangle two children, right? And Joshua is leading a nation, and he's thinking generationally. He's thinking legacy. Here's the reality. Children are God's strategy for making his name known after you are dead and gone. Children are. Children are God's strategy for making his name known after you are dead and gone. That is reality for us. That's reality for you parents. That's reality for you grandparents. And Joshua utterly gets this. We have this, um, this passage on, uh, on the TV here, uh, but from Joshua 4 in verse uh, 6, it says this. You see this early. They just crossed the river, and then he does this. He says, set up these stones that it may be a sign among you. When your children ask in the time to come, what do these stones mean to you? Then you shall tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. When it passed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall be to the people of Israel a memorial forever. What is he thinking about? He's not thinking about, guys, did you see this? What did we just do? We just crossed this Jordan. We just did this impossible task. We just landed this big deal. We're, we're now on this side and not that side. We have this great thing. No, that's not what he's thinking about. He's not talking about celebrating the moment. He's talking about you know what? We're one generation away from forgetting what God just did for us, that he allowed us to pass through the Jordan. And again, in in verse 20 of chapter 4, we read this, and this is on on here as well. And those 12 stones which they took out of the Jordan, Joshua set up at Gilgal. And he said to the people of Israel, when your children ask their fathers in times to come, what do these stones mean? Then you shall let your children know Israel passed over this Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over, as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, referring back to the Exodus, which he dried up for us until we passed over, so that all of the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever." See, even in our earliest encounters, as we are, as 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 Joshua assumes leadership over this nation, he is thinking generationally. He has an unbelievably tough task, and it's challenging for us as well. And so, what we hope to do over this next three weeks, and you're on a journey, so we ask that you come this week. We're glad you're here. Don't leave, uh, but then also come back the next two weeks so that we can get kind of into the, the nitty gritty of what family worship looks like. And so now as we kind of turn our attention to our present passage, Joshua 24, 14 through 28, and we are going to read the whole thing, um, I've kind of determined four different things for why it is important for you to pursue and execute on family worship. And they're this, okay? God deserves true family worship. God deserves it, okay? We, we must start there. If we don't start there, we become legalist, Okay? where we just like to check a box off just to accomplish a task that feels spiritual and good, okay? But we must start with, with, with right there. God deserves family worship. 
Your family needs true family worship. And I will say true family worship and explain that later. Your family needs true family worship. You, you need true family worship and that Jesus exemplifies true family worship. And so now we're going to turn to uh, this passage, slides 10 through 16 uh, in the back. Um, you can follow along on the screen if you don't have a copy of God's word in front of you. Now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and faithfulness. Put away the gods that your father served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods, of your, the gods your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. The people answered, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord and serve other gods. For it is the Lord our God who brought us who brought us and our fathers up out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, and who did those great signs in our sight and preserved us in all the way that we went, and among all the peoples through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out before us all the peoples, the Amorites who lived in the land. Therefore, we also will serve the Lord, for he is our God. But Joshua said to the people, You are not able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and, forget and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do harm to you and consume you after having done good to you. And the people said to Joshua, No, but we will serve the Lord. Then Joshua said to the people, You are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen to serve the Lord. Chosen the Lord and to serve him. And they said, we are witnesses. He said, then put away the foreign gods that are among you and incline your heart to the Lord, the God of Israel. And all the people said to Joshua, the Lord our God will, we will serve and his voice we will obey. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and put into place statutes and rules for them at Shechem. And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law and he took a large stone and set it up there under the ter- terebinth. That was by the sanctuary of the Lord. And Joshua said to all the people, Behold, this stone shall be a witness against us. For it has heard all the words of the Lord that he spoke to us. Therefore, it shall be a witness against you, lest you falsely deal with your God. So Joshua sent the people away, every man to his inheritance. It's our present passage. It's a daunting one. It's this man's last words. Let's lean in a little as we hear from the Lord through the words of Joshua. Before we discuss the first point that I made, that God deserves family worship, we kind of need to have a little bit of a discussion on what is worship. You ever thought about that? How do you define worship? This thing that we do collectively together, uh, led by great vocalists and also musicians here, what, what is that? What are, we, what are we seeking to do? Where, where does that come from? Why do we do this thing? Well, worship is really one of those words that is kind of hard to define. It's like, you know, love or intimacy or relationship. How do you define kind of those things? Well, I'm taking the approach of you give multiple definitions that give shape to kind of a holistic understanding. And so I, I talked with Matt Papa, and I got three things that I think kind of briefly explain what worship is. The first is by this guy, Bruce Leafblad, and he is a professor um, at a seminary, one of our Southern Baptist seminaries. He says this, Worship is communion with God in which believers by grace center their minds, attention, 
and heart's affection on the Lord, humbly glorifying God in response to his greatness and his word. That's a super helpful definition. Go to the next one by John Piper, who says this, Worship is what happens when we treasure God above all things. And then finally, we have by Harold Best, Worship in the broadest sense is acknowledging that someone or something else is greater, worth more, and by consequence to be obeyed, feared, and adored. Worship is the sign that in giving myself completely to someone or something, I want to be mastered by it. Kind of apologize for you guys who can't really see the screen over here. I might turn it just a little. But three great definitions, I think, for shaping our understanding of what it means to worship, to be people of worship. And so what we are asking you to do today is to consider how do we do these three things in the home? with your family. And, and why do we do these three things in the home with your family? Bonus point, side note, this is Matt Papa's favorite definition of worship right now, the one that he kind of likes the best. And so just FYI, go quote it to him later and make his day, I'm sure. So this is what we're asking you to do. But how do we accomplish this? Okay, how do we accomplish this? Well, I think Joshua really gives us a great example. And I know we're kind of reading the text a lot today, but that's just what we're going to do. Uh, We're going to read all of Joshua 24 because Joshua is entreating them to serve the Lord in our present passage. By the way, uh, that that word serve, anytime you hear that when when we're talking today, you can also, also hear the word worship. Okay? That word can be translated to mean either. So serve and worship kind of go hand in hand in our present passage. So Joshua is really entreating them to worship, to serve the Lord, and... He leads them to do so in verses 1 through 13. And so if you turn your attention there, we'll read this together. And what he's going to be doing here, y'all, is he is recounting all that God has done for Israel. He's recalling to their minds that God is a great God and that God is a redeeming God. He's a, a, a saving God. Who, he's a rescuing God who in very tangible and real ways has rescued them out of the hand of of slavery and ushered them into the promised land. So verse 1 of chapter 24, Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem, and he summoned the elders, the heads, the judges, the officers of Israel. By the way, these are the leaders, okay, the men, okay? This is the men. This is going to be a a man. We're going to have a very men-heavy application here in just a second where you're not going to get off easy, guys, okay? And that's me too, but we don't get off easy in this passage, guys, all right? Verse 2, and Joshua said to all the people, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham, and Nahor, and they served other gods. They didn't, let's stop right there. Notice what happened here. These were people who were ascribing majesty and worship and glory to to things that didn't deserve it. Abraham. He was worshiping other gods. He was unqualified. He was unfit, just like you and me. We were all one day worshiping other gods before God redeemed us, if you're redeemed in here. And so it was with these men. And then verse 3, Then I took your father Abraham. Listen to that language. What did he do? God rescued him. He snatched him out. You're worshiping other gods. You're you're living a meaningless life that will not matter in eternity. And what does he do? He snatches this guy out, and he gives him a new purpose, and he gives him a new meaning. I took your father Abraham from 
from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. I gave him Isaac, and to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau, and I gave Esau the hill country of Seir to possess, and, but Jacob and his children went down to Egypt, and I sent Moses and Aaron, and I plagued Egypt with what I did in the midst of it. And afterward, I brought you out. You see, they were enslaved. This is, a, this, is a God, this, is a, this is God's words reminding them over and over and over again why he's worthy of worship and service. He snatched you out. And if you're here today as a believer, this is your story. This is my story. Living my life for myself, selfish, and God snatched me out. Left to ourselves, that's all we'll ever do. We'll give our lives to other things that don't matter. But God steps in and redeems. Verse 6, And I brought your fathers out of Egypt, and you came to the sea, and the Egyptians pursued your fathers with chariots and horsemen to the Red Sea. And when they cried to the Lord, he put darkness between you and the Egyptians and made the sea come upon them and cover them. And your eyes saw what I did in Egypt, and you lived in the wilderness a long time. Then I brought you out of the land of the Amorites, who lived on the other side of the Jordan. They fought with you, and I gave them into your hand. And you took possession of their land, and I destroyed them before you. Then Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, arose and fought against Israel. And he sent and invited Balaam, the son of Beor, to curse you. But I would not listen to Balaam. Indeed, he blessed you. So I delivered you out of his hand. And you went over to the Jordan and came to Jericho. And the leaders of Jericho fought against you. And also the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And I gave them into your hand. And I set the hornet before you, which drove them out before you, the two kings of the Amorites. It was not by your sword or by your bow. You didn't do this. It's not by your sword, by your bow that this, that this happened. I gave you a land on which you had not labored, and cities that you had not built, and you dwell in them. I gave them to you, and you live there. You eat fruit, the fruit of vineyards and olive orchards that you did not plant. Guys, this is our hope. Our, our, your hope today, if, if you're not a believer in Christ or if you're not trusting in the gospel, your hope today is not that you can show up to church enough, do enough kind deeds enough to earn your salvation. We are all eating from vineyards that we did not plant. We are all laboring in fields that we did not secure ourselves by our own swords and by our own bows. That's not what happened. That's not how God works in the world. God takes inadequate, insufficient people who are living for other things and he snatches them out and brings them into the family of God and then gives them the promised land. Isn't that amazing? And this translates to family worship how? Well, for Joshua, it was, can't you... See what God has done? How can you not serve God? How can you not serve the Lord? Look at all that he has done for you. Over and over and over again, you faced challenge. Some were self-inflicted. Some were your, from your enemies. And I delivered you. And for us, we sin. We sin. And we, and we seek to, to trust more in the gospel. We seek to, to place our faith and hope in Christ in ways that motivates us to live righteously before God. And yet we fail. Husbands, I know you, I, I, admission right here, I was a jerk to my wife yesterday. I was a jerk. I was being selfish. I was being stubborn. I know I'm the only guy in here that did that yesterday. But I do that over and over and over again. And what, and what is true of me is that God has brought me into his family. 
He has rescued me, just like he rescued them. What Joshua is seeking to do here is to stir their hearts and affections. He's reminding them of all that God has done, because this is true of what it means to be human. You and I worship what we most value. You and I worship what we most treasure. That's just true. You will, you will worship what you most treasure and what you most value. You'll worship what you most fear. You will worship what you most adore. And Joshua knows they need a good and stern reminder. How could we not do family worship? How does this joy that you have when you realize all that God has done for you not spill over into communicating truth with your children? How does that happen? Well, for them, I think we've got a good example here. For the Israelites, it was they worshiped other gods. So as we work back through our, our, our present text, verses 14 through uh, 28, and we kind of look at verse 14 here, and where Joshua says, Now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Okay, So serve the Lord in sincerity and faithfulness. Put away the gods that your father served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. You see, living in a Genesis 3 world where the fall is real and we don't see truth for truth, uh, our, our vision is clouded and our hearts are darkened. And what we end up doing is, is we end up doing the same thing that the Israelites often did as they journeyed from Egypt to the promised land. They grumbled and complained because they were focused more on earthly things and on heavenly things. They turned their attention to the idols of the lands that they entered into. Oftentimes, and this happens many, many times in the Old Testament leading up to this passage, the Israelites are commanded to do what? To destroy the inhabitants of the land and all of the possessions. And what ends up happening? Well, in Joshua, there was a gentleman named Achan who does what? Well, he keeps a little back for himself, right? He keeps a little treasure back for himself. You know, this isn't like all that bad. But what he ends up doing is he brings judgment and curse on the whole nation of Israel. Joshua 7. And so... We have this same tendency. A couple of the gods that were very prevalent in this day and age, um, in, in particular in Canaan, were the Asheroth and the Baal, or as Southern Baptists call it, Baal. Okay? And the, the Baal god is, is really the most powerful god in all of Canaan, or so the Canaanites believed. And, and he and the Asheroth were both gods of fertility and, and of power and sexuality. And if you think about you know, why those things, well, there's a lot of reasons why those things, but if you think about the fact that they lived in an agrarian society where their survival day-to-day depended on crops growing, okay? You need fertile ground in order to live. You need fertility in the home between husband and wife in order to grow a nation, okay? Children weren't just like this thing you decide on if you're feeling, you know, ah, we need a kid, today you know or you know you don't you don't just like that's not how it was like it was something much more weighty it was survival it was legacy it was what was needed but there were two gods that were primarily prevalent there in Canaan the place where they just took off these were the gods of the Amorites that that Joshua is calling them out against here but then he also refers to the gods of Egypt you know how many gods you might know how many gods there were in Egypt there were 10 primary gods in Egypt how many plagues were there Ten. All right. Did you know that every plague that was sent to Egypt that on that on that series of days were plagues that directly addressed the false gods there? There was the the Nile god 
And I'll just give you a couple examples. The, the Nile God. And what was the Nile God? Well, he was the, he was the source of, of water, obviously, for them. But what does God do with the Nile? Turns that joker to blood, right? Just the blood. And says, you know what? This is not a powerful God. I'm a powerful God. I destroy your God. And then what happens? The very last plague was what? The death, you know, death of the firstborn. Well, Pharaoh, who had a son, right? He was known as the highest of all of the gods. And so there's kind of a climax where God attacks every single Egyptian god, including Pharaoh, by doing what? By destroying the thing that he knew that meant his legacy. Um, his, his firstborn was his legacy. And God says, you know what? You're not God. You're not a powerful God. I'm a powerful God. And here is the judgment. He showed and attacked Egypt at every level that they worshipped false gods, and he gave them, um, and, and, and he pulled Israel out of there. I mean, what an amazing story. But if you think about what happens, like this, this is incredible. But if you think about what happens, and we look, I'm just going to read Numbers tw- uh, chapter 20, verse 5. Um, you, 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 you hear that story. You, you know that God has rescued Israel out of the hand of Egypt. But what happens? Are they just grateful all the time? No. They forget. They just forget. Numbers 20, verse 5. And why have you made us come up out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? It is no place for grain or figs or vines or pomegranate. There's no water to drink. They complain. That's one instance of many where they complain against their leaders, Moses and Aaron, and say, why? We, have, we were comfortable there. We, were, we, had, we at least had purpose and jobs. We at least had food. We at least had some of these creature comforts that we don't have today. Shouldn't we just go back there? Shouldn't we just worship their gods and not do this thing that you've called us to? Their hearts are prone to idolatry, and so are, are ours. You know, Israel doesn't exist in this passage for us to nanaboo-boo them and say, what idiots, nanaboo-boo, you're crazy. Why would you do such a thing? The point of this passage in God's sovereignty is to show you that you do the same thing. And it's to show me that I do the same thing. And really, you and I are Israel in this passage. If we really are honest with ourselves and we unbutton the top button a little bit and we say, you know, here's who we really are, you know, this isn't, we're not faithful always. And, and we are Israel in this passage. In, in our elders meeting this past week, which we meet on Wednesday, we have an awesome group of elders. I, I just love these guys. They're awesome. That's all I'm going to say. But uh, they're awesome. But we were talking about idols that, that, as we were looking forward to this passage, idols that we see in Buckhead, idols that we see in Atlanta, idols that we see in American culture. And we just identified a few. And I wrote them down. Success. I'm going to do whatever it takes to make it to the top. Power. I'm going to do whatever it takes to show my authority in whatever situation, whether it's in my company, in my home, whatever. Status. Money, sex, child success, which I think was an interesting one. We are kind of like Pharaoh in that we want our firstborn to be awesome, you know, and like have this like, well, I live this dream, right? I live this dream. I, I, I was going to be um, Chipper Jones's like, you know, come after. I, I was just going to come right after him. And when Chipper retired, that was going to be my first day in, and I was going to be this awesome Braves player. I just knew it, and it didn't happen. And it's okay to dream and want things like that, but like we can't build our lives around things that aren't going to happen. But we do that. But with our child success, we want our children to be happy 
and comfortable and have all the new trinkets and not be viewed as strange or weird. We, we want them to be accepted. And then we just value our children, you know? Like, so child success, child leisure, and, and just children in general, where we, where, where we reshape our lives to accommodate the needs of, you know, children. And, and our lives as adults become child-centric and not them becoming parent-centric, where we're going somewhere and we're pointing them to, uh, to Jesus and, and, we're, and we're doing family worship, and even though they don't want to and all of these different types of things. There's just some idols that we see. But the reality is, is that this, these idols don't represent any degree whatsoever of neutrality before God. No degree of neutrality at all. In fact, in verse 15, if you look there really quickly, uh, Joshua says this, And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you'll serve. Do you hear neutrality there? I'm not hearing a space where we can both worship God and also worship idols. I, I'm hearing good and evil. I'm hearing stark contrast. I'm hearing there's no gray area here. You are serving the Lord God or it is evil to you to serve the Lord God. You are serving idols on the contrary. And so that's what he is saying here. And so there's no neutrality here. So another like hurdle, I guess, to doing family worship is like not knowing our own hearts enough to know that we are pursuing comfort in idols, the idols of our day, the idols of our culture, just like the nation of Israel was in Joshua's day. So I said, I pointed out earlier that I'm, I'm using this word true very specifically in my four points. And I know like the, the rest of the points are going to go by fast, so don't worry. Uh, but the first point here is, is so important because, again, I don't want us to be legalists. I want us to see the glory of God, know the glory of God, and, and hear what he's done for us and let that translate down into our families. But why true worship, true family worship? God deserves true family worship. Your family needs true family worship. Well, this word true here is important, I think, uh, and I think Joshua is getting at this too in, in verse 14. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him with what? Sincerity and faithfulness. You know what that tells me? That there's an insincere way that people can approach serving and worshiping God. And there's a, a lack of faithfulness. There, there, there's a faithless way to serve and worship the Lord. There's, there's a way that we can do that as human beings, where we put on this facade and it's not real. We like the social structure that church brings to our family, so we kind of do it. We, we want to, you know, get a good, you know, we want to be in the good crowd. You know, the, the churchgoers are the good people in business, and we want to network well with the good people in business. And so, like, we're going to go to church, be a part of this church or that church, because of, you know, all of those, like, superfluous benefits that that might bring. That's real. That was real then. And it's real today. So test your heart. Know yourself. Do you sincerely and faithfully serve and worship God? There is no neutrality here. But there is a way to do this in a fake kind of way. But we also need to know that we are handing down what is the true gospel, which, which creates true worship in our homes, in our own hearts, the true gospel. Christian Smith, and I don't know how many of you listen to the podcast um, the Think Through It podcast. Graham could probably pull some numbers for us real quick. Last week I checked, it was like 93, which I know there's more than 93 of you in here, so um, not everybody listened. 
but we'll give you another week. It'll still be up. But Matt Hall, who was here several weeks with us, he talked about this ideology, this, this new religion that's kind of made its way into um, Christian youth and, and even Christian adults. And he calls it moral therapeutic deism. And moral therapeutic deism is the result of this study done by, by Oxford and him at Oxford when he was doing his PhD um, in 2005. And, and moral therapeutic deism is this. There's, there's four tenets. And, and I'm telling you, when you read these things, don't read them yet, Tara. Don't read them yet, Tara. All right. When you read these things, uh, you're going to hear a lot of what you maybe heard if you grew up recently in church. You, you may hear some things that you're like, ah, that's, not, that's really not that bad, is it? But it's wicked. I'm telling you it's wicked. It's not the true gospel. Moral therapeutic deism is this. Claims this, that, that a God exists who created and orders the world and watches over human life on earth. Check. God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other as taught in the Bible and by most world religions. The central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. And then finally, God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when God is needed to resolve a problem. And good people go to heaven when they die. Um, you know, that, that, a lot of that kind of sounds good, but it's very incomplete, isn't it? Isn't it? It's very incomplete. Uh, there, there's, a lot, there's a lot bad about this, in particular that good people, you know, the, you know, predicated by this right here, good people go to, go to heaven when they die. I mean, there are no good people. And that's what Joshua's trying to tell everyone. That, like, you, you don't earn this thing. It's, it's not yours. Um, it's not real. And so we've got to be careful that our churches, and, and this is what we're very intentional about at Christ's Covenant, by the way, that your children and you will hear the true gospel. We are 100% dedicated to that. We have elders who pray for that. We, we hold, hold one another accountable to that. We ask you to hold us accountable to that. This is the worst thing that could happen to someone is just to think that the God of the Bible is this moral therapeutic God who exists and good people go to heaven when they die. That is not real, and that is wicked, all right? That is just absolutely wicked. And so we've got to make sure that this is true worship. And so I would argue that the primary reason that we struggle so often with prioritizing time for personal worship and family worship is that we're treasuring idols. We have too small of a view of God, and we forget that he deserves it. And this is what Joshua understands. That's why he recalls the story of God to the people in the way that he does. So we're moving on here. Point two. Your family, this, this, the second reason family worship really, really matters and why you should pursue it here, is your family needs true family worship. Simply put, okay, simply put, when you sit down with your children and you point them to the Bible, to truth, to the gospel, when you sing songs of praise, when you do these exercises that Matt was talking about earlier with his children in the home, what happens is you are putting them in the way of grace. We are not telling you that if you do family worship right all the time, that your children are going to be saved. That's not what we're telling you. But we are telling you that you have a responsibility as parents, as grandparents, as future fathers and mothers and husbands and wives, hopefully the other way around, husbands and wives and then fathers and mothers, that, that you are going to put your children in the way of grace. Put them in the way of grace. That's what, we, that's what they need. They need to know God. They need to know the gospel. 
And there's some other benefits that I've identified here. You know, reading the Bible shapes character. Psalm 119.9 says this, How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. The second, it may save their souls. 2 Timothy 3.15. Paul talking to Timothy, And how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Thirdly, the earlier the better. Like start early. Train up with Proverbs 22, 6. Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. And then fourthly, it helps them fulfill their whole purpose for being here. And that's really a, just absolutely put a nail in that one. All right, It helps them fulfill the purpose they were created for. We have just such a misconstrued uh, view of, of children in, in our present culture. Um, we, we just do. Um, you know, I do. I, I, I fight daily <laughs> to, to have a great view of children whenever a two-year-old is, like, looking up at you and saying no and, like, trying to give you, trying to redefine, you know, what is real in your life. It's like, who are you? Like, what are you even thinking right now? <laughs> like, it, it's, it's really hard to, like, really all the time grasp what, what children are for. But here's what children were introduced as. And I mentioned this earlier. Children were introduced as God's strategy for making himself known. In Genesis 1, 28, what, is, what does the Bible say? What does God tell Adam and Eve? Be fruitful and multiply and take dominion. Okay, that's summarizing it. Be fruitful and multiply and take dominion. Not so that you can just like own all this land and have your own like success. Obviously, people don't do that. We look at the nation of Israel and it's continually God through these people taking dominion over the land that he owns. The purpose of children is that they will be God's strategy for making himself known for the generations and generations to come. That they would tell the story that we've been talking about today over and over and over again to many, many people. And so we cannot be, we can't as parents feel like we are owners of our children. We're not. We're simply stewards of our children. The owner versus steward mindset I think is just unbelievably valuable to grasp and understand. Okay, When you're an owner of something, you can do with it as you please. When you're a steward of something, you can do with it as the owner pleases. And that's exactly who our children are for us. They have been given to us by God's design to make himself known to the generations, and you're a steward of that reality. And so it's important. It is so, so important. Spurgeon again says, I trust that they're here. Are none here present who profess to be followers of Christ who do not also practice prayer in their families? We may have no positive commandment for it in Scripture, but we believe that it is so much in accord with the genius and spirit of the gospel, and that it is so commended by the example of the saints that the neglect thereof is but a strange inconsistency. It is strangely inconsistent that you would come to church. And that you would sing songs of praise to God and forget him throughout the rest of your week? That is strangely weird. That's what the Bible, that's what Joshua was getting at here. You can't compartmentalize your life in such a way like a bunch of chess pieces on the board and hope that you have a winning set. Like, that's not it. Like, this is an all-in kind of thing that, that he's calling us to here. And parents are the mechanism for, and, and are the stewards for that going forward. Thirdly, you need family worship. You need true family worship. You need the accountability of ministry. Jason talks a lot about this, uh, but fathers 
Um, here, you know, Joshua, he called all the elders, the judges, the heads, uh, the officers. These were the, these were the men. And he said, listen here, men, here's what God has done for you. Now you go and lead. That's exactly what uh, Joshua said. And if we kind of adopt that as men, as our own responsibility, which it really is, then you will be accountable for that. There's an accountability that comes with recognizing that you are the primary discipler of your children in the home. There's a huge responsibility that comes with that that you're accountable for. Now, what happens? You know who, who's going to learn the most from me preaching this sermon today? Me. Why? Because I had to study it. I had to prepare for it in order to communicate it. And I pray that God by His Spirit is going to teach a lot of us, you know, a lot of new things and help our hearts along this journey as parents and grandparents and future parents and all these things. But there's an accountability that comes with it that you need. You need anchors in your life. You know, I, I played basketball in college, and by the time I was a junior and senior, I really thought I understood the game, okay? I really thought I knew the game, you know. You give, give it to Rodgers on the three-point line, I'm going to knock it down, you know. I, I just knew it. Driving kick, I was, you know, kick it at me. I'm going to shoot it. Bang. It's kind of Matt Papa's game, by the way. He's a baller. He, see? Look, he's nodding. He knows. I, I, I just knew how to get that done, I thought. But then you know what I had to do? Later, I coached the game for five years. And I realized, after year one, I, ain't, I don't know anything. <laughs> I don't know anything. Do coaches really have to think this deeply about this game? Do they really have to break down everything and seek to apply it in a way that sets you up for success in the floor as a team? Yes, they do. And by year five, I knew a heck of a lot more because I was accountable for teaching these young men how to go to battle every day on the court. Like, there's an accountability there that you will benefit from that will raise the tide for all of the ships in the harbor. And so you need that. I need that. But it's also a compass, okay? Why else do you need it? It's a compass for decision-making, you know, I know oftentimes I talk about when I'm up here, my, my uh, life experience with my family's adoption story. You know, I was a 16-year-old. I was selfish. I, I thought life was about me, and my parents decided to adopt. I knew that there were people of the Word who tried their best as often as they could and remembered to, to read the Word with us, even though I was, like, kicking and screaming every time because I already knew everything, you know? And so, like, that was true. And when they decided to adopt and it showed me that, well, this world's really not about you and this is actually founded in Scripture— I kind of had a compass for understanding that decision. It gave me a ground, an anchor for understanding, why would we do this, this thing that I feel like is strange and weird and not really jiving with what makes me most popular? Well, it's because it's rooted in Scripture. It gives you a compass for your family. But the, it, and so it, that's good for you as a leader, but it's better for the followers. It is so much better for the followers who can put two and two together and who can see clearly as their mother and father have broken down life and sought to apply it specifically to them and make decisions based on what they're going to do uh, in, in life by God's grace as stewards. And so it's important. It's important. There are several of us in here, probably uh, all of us actually, all of us, uh, we actually hear this sermon differently uh, many of you um, are dating, many of you are engaged, you know, some of you are engaged, many of you are married, many of you have been married a long time, many of you are married with young children like me, many of you are married with teenage kids, many of you have kids out of the home, and so you kind of hear this differently, and, and like, what I want you to hear is that no matter where you are, kind of on your journey of personal and family worship, this matters for you, 
But you might be in the situation where your children are gone. Or maybe, maybe your children are like in high school and they're about to go to college. And that blaring statistic that we talked about, 70% of people who graduate high school leave their parents' homes, end up leaving the church. Maybe that's like daunting for you right now. Here are just four things really quickly. If, you're, if your kids are out of the home, if your kids are close to leaving the home, this gets really hard. How do you institute a new pattern and make it seem genuine and not like I'm just trying to, you know, you know, manipulate you to be something that you're not? I'm trying to change the road you're going down, which is true. Uh, but how do you do this? Well, I would say relentlessly pursue your children. Relentlessly pursue your children. Secondly, place your hope in the fact that Jesus saves according to his free grace and mercy and not according to our works. And so maybe like you honestly look at this and you're like, you know what? I did miss out on family worship and I'm responsible for that. At the end of the day, your child's salvation, no matter how old they are, is not dependent on your works. Okay. Unfortunately, you know, they were not put in the way of grace. But God can still save, and he does still save. And in fact, there are stories within this church family right now today that are that. That, hey, I kind of missed the boat on this, but I pursued my son in such a way that he now is involved and in, in a professing believer in church. That happens. And then finally, pray for your children. J.C. Ryle says this, They should go to Jesus in prayer and cry out to him about their child. They should spread before the that merciful Savior, the tale of their sorrows, and entreat him to help them. Great is the power of prayer and intercession. The child of many prayers shall seldom be cast away. I'm going to say that again. The child of many prayers shall seldom be cast away. God's time for conversion might not be ours. He may think fit to prove our faith by keeping us long and waiting, but so long as a child lives and a parent prays, we have no right to finally despair about our child's soul. There's great hope there. There's great hope in the gospel. There's great hope in the story of the Israelites and God relentlessly pursuing them. And then finally, the, the, the fourth reason why family worship is this. This is a short point, but it's the big point, and it's Jesus exemplifies true family worship. Jesus exemplifies true family worship. In Matthew 26, 30, and in Mark 14, 26, these are two kind of twin accounts. Uh, both of these passages speak of Jesus singing, pray, singing songs and, and hymns with the disciples after they just had communion. Jesus in, in that gathering is worshiping his father. What a, what, a worship, what a family worship service that is. The son of God worshiping the father. Jesus exemplifies this. There are other passages, Romans 15 and Hebrews 2, that talk about possible songs that Jesus may have been singing that we can ascribe to him. This is a rare picture of Jesus singing to the father, his father. But here's the reality, and here's our hope. Jesus didn't just worship his father here one time in this home, what did he do? He lived a life of worship. And do you know that's what's required of us? What's required of you is not that you should just be a faithful steward and earn your salvation. What's, what's real is that you haven't earned it, and Jesus did. And his faithful worship of God at the cross is transferred for our faithless worship of God. All of our failures are cast on him at the cross. And Jesus, because he is the, the primary, the typified, 
the climax of what it means to do family worship, he is our hope today. And so our hope is not that you will leave here and just get it right and earn something. That's not true. That's not going to happen. Our hope is that you have seen what Jesus has earned for you, what God has done for you in Christ, and that your response throughout the week is going to be, we will worship. For me, as for me and my house, we will do what? We will serve the Lord. That is our hope today. And then finally, just as we kind of close here, and you guys can um, come on down and, and we'll uh, finish things out, we are going to have communion uh, here in just a second. But here's the reality. Maybe like you're, you've struggled with this area of your life. Maybe you've kind of suppressed truth in your own heart and you've kind of calloused up and over, uh, over the years. Husband, do you know who could tell you what you seem to be worshiping by your patterns in life? Your wife. Wives, do you know what, who could probably best tell you what you're worshiping in life? It's your husband. And then as a legacy, years and years and years from now, your children will be able to do the same. And so I hope today is that we will do like Joshua instructed these people to do. In verse 25, so Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and put into place statutes and rules for them at Shechem. And Joshua wrote these words of the book of the law of God. And he took a large stone. He took a large stone and set it up there under the terebinth. And that was, by, that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. And Joshua said to this people, Behold, this stone shall be a witness against us. It has heard all the words of the Lord that he spoke to us. Therefore, it shall be a witness against you, lest you deal falsely with God. This is an accountability measure that Joshua has put in place, just like he did with the memorial stones in chapter 4. But you know, Joshua was an amazing leader, and his, his life ends right after this passage. But Joshua really points us forward to the true family worshiper, Christ, who didn't just usher us into a land, he ushers us into eternity perfectly. And that's our hope today.